Teddy Taylor, now chopping up meat for a living in a Southport supermarket, once led his own beat group, King Size Taylor and the Dominoes. They sold a million records on the continent, but never hit the big time here. Teddy is happy enough, but he would have liked a few quid in the bank after all those hard days nights banging out rock and tatty clubs, and then missing out on the Mersey beat craze of the 60s. Well, now Teddy has had some luck. It's just possible after all these years that he might get his just reward. Lying under a counter in the butcher's shop is something which could compensate Teddy for all the millions he never made. It's a tape recording. It's quite an old one. We put it on a new spool. This recording is unique. It's the first and only copy of the Beatles playing live. Teddy owns it and it could make his fortune out of the beat business at last. This tape could be worth millions. It's a unique recording of the Beatles as they were before they hit the big time. It's the only one in existence. And it came about when I was in Hamburg and uh, we were playing at the same time as the Beatles there and we used to use a, a tape recorder to find the levels. This is in 1962, Christmas Eve, this one was made. And what happened? Uh, well, we had this tape recorder set up at the time and um, it was just left running throughout the night. Everybody was on it, uh, all the old bands from the time. And uh, when we came to sort it out later on, it finished up with about two and a quarter hours of the Beatles on it, you know. I was playing it in a, a studio in Liverpool, which my friend owned, and it just got left there for about five or six years. In fact, it never even crossed my mind until I happened to mention it to Alan Williams. Welcome this week's one there with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm John Stone. So, big news this week. We learned that the Get Back release is not just going to be a two-hour film in theaters. Right. The theories are flying and the opinions and whether or not there's going to be a standalone film that would be a typical theatrical release and then another six hours on the Disney Plus. But then I heard, no. I don't see it going that way. There's at least a small, not great, but a small chance of a, of a theatrical release at two hours. But I think this announcement, as particularly their, their language that is exclusive to Disney+, Plus, kind of makes that unlikely. 
Yeah, you know, the the idea that you would put together a two-hour film with a story arc and then also do six hours seems like more work than it was worth. But, you know, I can see a lot of people being disappointed in not having a, a theatrical release, as was kind of promised. You know, six hours is a lot to ask people to donate of their time. But I'd like to see something on the big screen if they could do it. I would, too. And I understand that they do intend to release Let It Be, the original version, in a cleaned-up fashion. Although I haven't seen any announcement of that in and amongst this new material. Not not this new material. Yeah. I mean, you know. I I caught it in a news article yeah i think they're still quoting the original press release from last year which basically you know the very last thing was oh by the way we're also gonna put the original let it be out there at some point in time they've never been real specific about when when they're planning on that happening then again do we need the original let it be i know you're not real fond of it i'm not particularly fond of the the film but you know it is part of the the canon, as it were, and so I, you know, I don't really have a problem with putting that out. It's just I don't think it's a very well constructed film. That's just based on my feelings about the movie, but I wouldn't not want it to be available. They're almost being forced to make it available. The other thing is they've done so much work on it through the years, you know, that they finally should just settle on it and say, okay, we're putting this out because people want it. It will sell to who, whoever wants it. And we don't really need to do that much work. The original Let It Be. Right. So anyway, people's complaints, not in theaters. A lot of people don't want to pay eight bucks even for a month of Disney Plus. But, you know, what are you going to do about it? It's a streaming world nowadays. All I can do is laugh at them. <laughs> it's like, you're, what, you're going to pay $8 for a month and you can watch it a bunch of times. And then, I mean, they don't sign you up for a year contract. You can cancel. If that's what you want to do. Do but all the complaints about I'm not going to watch Disney Plus or something, you know, it just seems like, well, okay, if you don't want to, don't. Well, and not that we're recommending it, but there are always alternative means of obtaining it, right? And we are not recommending that because that's you know, that's not good. No, no, but but that does bring us to our topic for the day. I'm becoming the, the master of segues here. <laughs> We've mentioned this several times in previous iterations of this show, but we're actually going to take a a whole show here to talk about uh, Hamburg. And in particular, there's a new version, well, new as of 2018, 2019, out on the internet from a fellow named Lord Reith. He's put out the uh, Live at the Star Club tapes, cleaned up to an incredible degree. It really is... Stunning. Good evening, sir. How are you? This evening, rather, you look good. Good to see you. I bought the Hamburg tapes or live at the star club back in 77 or 78 strictly because 
oh my gosh, here's the Beatles playing in the club. But the sound was abysmal. And, you know, understanding how it was recorded, you could see that it was never going to be very good. But the amount of cleanup this guy has achieved is kind of stunning. You can hear the band. It's not high fidelity, but it's never going to be high fidelity. It's one microphone (laughs) hanging over the stage. Exactly. And so because of that, you're you're, you're limited. But he's been able to, in effect, remove a lot of the room that caused echo and reverb and muddied up the sound. So the result is, is great. Yeah, there's, there's a film from 62 which shows you the inside of the Star Club and the stage. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. And it's really amazing to see what the room looked like. Yes. It was taken between the first and second trips in 62 that the Beatles had to uh, Hamburg. That's quite possible. The the club goers were the exact same people who would see the Beatles when they were there. Yeah, quite uh, quite possibly. And Tony Sheridan is in the band that's playing in this film footage. So it's it's as close as you can get <laughs> until someone comes up with film with the Beatles at the Star Club. And just slightly related to that, there's a footage of the Reaper Bond from somewhere. Within either the two weeks before or the two weeks after the Beatles first showed up in Hamburg for the first time in 1960, you know, you, you keep looking at it. It's like you can imagine John or Paul sort of walking around the corner in their leathers. Right. You know, what really got me in watching those films was was the garbage on the streets. It looked like a, a constant party. <laughs> Like old Times Square, you know, 70s Times Square in New York, it looks a lot like that. Yes, it does. Very seedy. Everything else was such a buzz, you know, being Mm. right in the middle of the naughtiest city in the world at 17 years old. It Mm. was kind of exciting. And learning, you know, about, well, there's all the gangsters and there's the transvestites and there's the, you know, it was like that. There's the hookers. That must have been some eye-opener. Well, and, and then you add in the, that would have been the first place that the Xs came to. You know, Ostrid and Jurgen were very much sort of nice kids for, for, for all that we like to call them Xs. And we talk about the drugs and everything else. They were a group of nice college kids. Yes, out for a good time. And they weren't hardcore punks. They weren't John Lennon. <laughs> John liked to... Uh, play up that aspect you know he was never really a teddy boy either no i don't think he went around hitting people i mean i don't think he got off on that kind of violence but he certainly put up a a bravado that perhaps he hoped would keep them from getting into those situations but uh he had a quick tongue and apparently he could he could stand up against most I mean, Ringo was much closer to that, and, well, he kind of had to fall into at least as much gang life as he could, really, until he got into the bands. Right, because the the neighborhood he came from forced him into a a social thing that that John was never exposed to in his Mendips household. Vaguely suburban neighborhood, and then going to art school. 
gosh, I wouldn't want to call John Lennon a poser, but that's, you know, he, he had a look and a, a thing to him, but it wasn't because gangs were looking for him. Well, I mean, and that's why the whole idea that he started the fight that resulted in Stewart getting this blow to the head is patently ridiculous. Right, it is. So the other thing I want to bring up product-wise, there's a book which I've got on order, which is supposed to be really great, written by the man who knows all about Hamburg. Uh, it's called The the Beatles Mock Chow in Hamburg, and uh, it's like 500 pages and supposedly covers everything. He's the one who gave uh, Lewis and all of the Hamburg information. And so he's going to jump with the book first. That's great. Um, yeah, that, that'd be a fun read. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting that. Uh, it includes a forward by Jurgen and an afterward by Howie Casey. I've I read like magazine articles and things from him, and he certainly has a, an impressive collection of things. Is he German? Uh, he's German. Cool. So I'm looking forward to actually getting my copy of the book. I, I don't have it in hand yet. Macho. You have an English version? Uh, and yeah, he has an English version. So well, I'll have to get one myself. <laughs> All right. The thing about the tapes, there was always confusion about when they were recorded. We now know that they were among the last nights of the Beatles in Hamburg ever. Well, ever, ever in the clubs. Apparently, uh, the tape recorder had been newly set up and it was kind of open for the bands to record on. And so it's not a particular night. It's over a couple of nights. What I think we've figured out or what has been figured out is there's like four separate sets represented in the various songs that are on there. Ah. So, and, and certainly one of them is the New Year's Eve night. We know this from some of the introductions they make. Well, it's a good set. Lots of fun. It's now been out for 40 years, so some of the surprise is gone. But when you hear it, you know, you really get a sense of the band from its uh, wide range of material to a really strong sense of humor, both in the music and the banter, you know, let it singing uh, on Mr. Moonlight. Here I am on my nose, you know, as opposed to knees. And my favorite is Sweet Little 16, you know. He also, I think, uh, introduces Shimmy Shimmy. In the heart of my guns to create a shitty shitty. Which is a little too you know so there, there's a, a beetle humor thing that's definitely there you could hear that and go i can see how epstein could go hey this is kind of cool and then for years you know they've been telling us that they were drunk on stage there's no way they are far too on they may be on speed. They may have had some, some prelude in, but they are not drunk in any of these sets. And I would say if I was a betting man, prelies were probably involved and not necessarily alcohol, although it seems like being in 
the Star Club on New Year's Eve, someone's going to sit me sending drinks up to you. And there may be sets later in the evening after they've had a few that didn't get recorded. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's destroy those tapes. Let's go into some background. How did we get here? And it's really, you know, you look at how far they came. Yes, and, you know, that that's a point that, that Lewis makes in his book, is that the, the Beatles performed so many hours of being on stage and playing that by the time they were into their recording career, they seriously had played more on stage than anybody else on the planet, basically. Because most shows had, you know, you'd go up and you'd sing for four songs, six songs, whatever. And that's that was the touring acts who were playing rock and roll. And the Beatles played more than what you'd be booked if you were in Liverpool. Well, that and the fact that Paul likes to tell us that they didn't, ever want to repeat the same song twice in a night you know roy storm and the pacemakers they were in hamburg for you know roughly the same number of hours but they would do a set and then they do the same set and then they do the same set they do the same set four times in an evening right the beatles okay we're gonna do eight hours and we're gonna try and not repeat the same song at any point in this eight hours with my experience of playing live, I just can't imagine doing eight hours, <laughs> even broken up in two or three hour chunks. Right. It's, that's just crazy. I mean, that, that is amazingly hard. And to do that and to not try and repeat yourself. Okay. What's next? Well, no, we've done that. We've done that. We've done that. Okay. We're going to play the third song on Carl Perkins's fourth album. I'm sure they had that kind of uh, palette. It's probably the, the most unusual songs.
know, we, we know the story of the trip to Hamburg in 1960. Alan Williams, after Howie Casey uh, of the seniors, told him, don't send that bum group over here. You're going to ruin a good thing. That was when they picked up Pete Best. It's like, we need a drummer tomorrow. And they went away in a con and, you know, mooting amongst themselves. And just as they made the decision, Alan Williams came through the door. And they said, Alan, you know, meet the new drummer. This is Pete. And Alan turned around and said, yes, he said, it was already a foregone conclusion. We knew what you were about. Uh, we had to make you audition just in case you asked for more money. So that was how I actually got to join them. There's a guy who plays drums. And he owns a kit and he can go to Hamburg tomorrow. Right. The audition was apparently just, okay, set up your kit, play a couple simple beats, do, do a drum roll, good enough. Right. They were going to Hamburg with Stu Sutcliffe on bass, and he was no fantastic musician. He was kind of at, still in a learning stage. I think Stu was better than we give him credit for. From what I have read, he was an intelligent man, and he learned. But starting off, he really didn't know. It took him a while to get there. Yeah, I mean, we have the May 1960 tape, and Stu is not on most of it. Right. You know, we get a little bit of Stuart on bass. Yes, he bought the instrument. He was learning how to play it. But, you know, I think that people have overblown just how terrible he was. Yeah, I think the conflict between Paul and him has been kind of really worked up. And so that kind of suggests, well, Stu must have not been very good. But I don't really know that that was the case. It was more Paul being more musical. We realized his limitations. You know, he, he wasn't the best of bass players. There were, you know, lots of bad, you know, bass players around who were better than him, but you'll always get that. Um, but what people failed to realize was he gave 200% you know, and if you, you know, give 200% of yourself on stage, it comes out in your music, you know, but he, he wasn't as bad as people made out. We had our sticky moments. We had a fight on stage one night, which I assumed I'd win because he wasn't that big. Mm. But, the, the, but the, 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 the manic, you know, the, the strength of love or something entered into him and he was no easy match at all. We just lay, we were locked for about half an hour. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. oh, bloody God, yeah. go on. And they had to actually, I think, poured water on us in the end, you know. <laughs> But uh, no, they had to sort of pull us apart. Yeah, it was, it was real. So 1960, they were there basically from October to the end of November. I'll go with that. So they were there for a while, and they actually thought they might even leave Hamburg and go play other places in Germany, but that never happened. I forget it as to why all the reasons. The main reason, of course, is that they wanted to go off to another club. They wanted to escape Bruno Koschmieder and... He wasn't going to let them out of their contract. Right. But, you know, there's a, there were also a lot of military bases all through that area that they could have played at. But George was underage, and that was the easiest reason for them to get the Beatles out of Germany. Right. Paul and Pete and the infamous burning of a condom. Then John just, what am I going to do? Yep, that's how that works. <laughs> at that point, Stu decides to stay. You actually left the band around about June. I mean, he was with us when we actually went back for that second tour in, in April. Uh, he left just before the actual Polydor recordings with, you know, uh, Tony Sheridan. Stu left the group. He was, he wanted to stay there with Astrid, who was his love of his life, and and they were madly, passionately in love, and it was it was a crazy thing. 
great and a mad passionate thing. It's at that point that McCartney has to pick up the bass. Although he wouldn't actually buy his own until the next trip down. Which was... So once Georgia turned 18 in March of 61, March the 27th to be precise, they managed to uh, get new visas and get into Hamburg. Peter Eckhorn of the Top 10 Club wanted them back in town. He had believed that they would be able to bring crowds in, he, and he wanted to stick it to, to Koshmeter. So he actually paid Paul and Pete's fines, and he managed to get them back to Hamburg. So when they go back to Hamburg, Paul plays Stu's bass? So we were stuck without a bass player. So I, the last couple of weeks, when we knew he was going to stay, I played his bass upside down. You know, I learned, because being left-handed, you do learn to play things upside down, because mm-hmm. no one will ever change the strings for you. So I ended up, as I say, on uh, Stu's Hofner bass. And um, that was how I ended up on bass anyway. The biggest change to me was, and the one that was a shock, was when the band was only four people and Paul was playing the bass. This was also when they first hooked up with Tony Sheridan for any significant amount of time. Tony Sheridan was known to them because he was among Britain's first rock stars. He was showing up on TV as much as Elvis or Carl Perkins or Little Richard in the late 50s. Okay, come and get it, it's oh boy! Every day, every week, I know that love is here today, but I like it. Woo, I like it. His star was slightly on the decline, but he was still managing to book pretty big clubs in Hamburg. You know, when the Beatles were there, there's a tendency to kind of look at that point in their career and go, you know, that the things that they were doing weren't for real in a way. I mean, you know, Burke Camford, who signed them and had them record in Hamburg, was a famous orchestra leader he, you know he'd written strangers in the night and he was a real producer and tony sheridan was a pretty well-known singer so they were in show business at that point uh, absolutely so so it was towards the end of that trip it was into june was when paul was to actually get the 61 hoffner so march to june well march to july is is the trip uh july 2nd was when they left Hamburg. Uh, the re- the recording was on the 22nd of June with Bert Camford. It was roughly a week before that that Paul had actually picked up the left-handed Hoffner. Yeah, I just marvel at how quick he did that. You know, most people, you hand them a brand new instrument, particularly since he was used to playing a right-handed bass upside down, being Stu's bass, to actually get a left-handed instrument. And within a week, you know, it's not a... St- stellar baseline that he's playing but it's you know it's in the root for the most part but it works yeah it's it's musical that's part of his genius he i mean he he knows how music feels how it should feel and so even though he's not all over the neck it's still a musical performance and joe byardi would not let us 
get away with without mentioning that you know Paul claims that he walked into the store and saw a right-handed Hoffner and said, "Oh well, I can play that upside down," and then then bought that. No, he had to have ordered the left-handed one specifically. He may have walked in and seen a right-handed one and say, oh, well, that won't look unusual if I turn it the other way. But he didn't just pick it up. They went and they they actually ordered him one. And that may well have been his first real left-handed instrument. The Rossetti was was right-handed, I think. Correct. How quickly he picked that up is amazing. Yes. It's 61. And so... In a year and a half, he's a damn good bass player. Oh, absolutely. So that was that trip. Before we leave Burt Camford, the fact that he let the Beatles record not just one, but two songs on their own, that's always struck me as kind of amazing because he was you know, mildly interested in them, but he really he, he took them because they were Tony's backing band. Yes. You know, it, it's funny that he would do that. And it's, it's almost the same kind of thing that occurs when George Barton decides that he's going to let these guys write their own songs. He went completely out of character and said, okay, I'm going to go this way. And so Camford, I think, heard something in their music. was like, I'm going to, I'm going to put that on tape. What else you got? Uh, one thing we didn't mention about that 60 trip, when the Beatles and Roy Storm were alternating sets there's the infamous story of, of John Paul George plus Ringo plus Lou Walters going off and recording Summertime in what amounts to a uh, record-your-own-record booth. Right. Unfortunately, the record no longer exists as far as we know. Well, do they know who first got it? Well, the uh, Lou Walters had it, and we know that Alan Williams had a copy of it at one point in time, an a-, a, a secondary acetate of it. And Alan Williams claims he left it in the back of a cab. <laughs> if that copy still exists somewhere, the first recording with the four Beatles on it, even if it's Lou Walters singing lead, can you imagine how much that record would be worth? <laughs> yeah. That's always amazed me a little bit was that, yeah, okay, they were friends and they were even you know playing alternating sets in the same club, but the right combination got together. Pete didn't want to go, and so, you know, Lou Walter said, well, Ringo can come along, and that was the four of them. Right. You know, but that wasn't their first meeting. They had met in Liverpool, of course. Yeah, and I, I think that knowing the way they are, their personalities, that they were probably got on great in the clubs, drinking together, and being in the music scene there. That's the story that Paul tells was that uh, – the Beatles always ended up playing the last set and Ringo would stick around and drink and, and ask for these, you know, sad songs. <laughs> if they had the last set, I'd sort of be semi-drunk and demanding they play slow songs. Play the Remember Ringo used to come in very late at night. He liked the sort of blues sessions when there was no, not many people there. And I can see what he liked too, and we'd be... We're getting down by then, and we'd be pulling out all the B-sides. We used to do a thing called 3.30 Blues. And I only found out later, because I was still this teddy boy, uh, I found out from John that they were a bit frightened of me. Right. And so that was where they really got to know each other. And that was a key thing in this story, you know, that the fact that they got on really well. 
and this was just kind of you know the beginning. You're just kind of drinking and laughing and smoking and flirting with the girls. And, but you get to know people, you know, who you like and who you don't like. And I don't think Pete ever put himself in a situation where anybody could like him. Well, that and Pete had a girlfriend. So, you know, once he was done working, it's like, okay, I'm off. The The other three would go out and chase whores. Right. And it's not a bad thing to say that because, well, they would tell you they were whores as well. Yes. And, you know, part of that huge chasm between them, why... Did they fire Pete Best? Well, that's a huge part of it. When there was criticism of him, there was nobody in the band who would speak for him. And they knew Ringo. Pete was just never more than an adequate drummer. I think he probably worked that first trip to Hamburg. He, he managed to get enough of a stomp going. And, and that's his thing. You know, he, he likes to claim, oh, I invented this Adam beat. But... <laughs> I think he could play enough that he could get a, get the stomp going. But Darren in the drum show, which went back up, says, uh, oh, well, Pete really only knew one fill, and it's true. Oh, yes. Play a bunch of eighth notes really fast. That's his <laughs> fill. And, you know, there's stories of Camford slowly taking parts of his kit away. And by the end, he basically had a snare drum and a hi-hat. <laughs> And you can hear that on the recordings. I didn't hear it for a while because the fidelity of everything I ever heard was lousy. But now I can hear that there's no four there at all. So since we're talking about Ringo, one of the things a lot of people don't know is that really in early 62, Ringo had decided that he might move to Germany full time and you know do what Tony was doing and play in the clubs in Germany. He was actually planning to stay in Germany, and he was in Tony Sheridan's band for four, six weeks at the beginning of 62. I think he was kind of driven home because of uh, a flood. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, Lewis tells a little bit about it, but you go on the internet and you read about this, this North Sea flood. It's like, well, okay, particularly given that the way the clubs were wasn't like the way it is today, I can see that why it took them a good month, six weeks to really sort of get things back going to something akin to what it was before. Right. It was a cataclysmic flood. That drove Ringo back to England, and Roy Storm was all too happy to give him back his gig. Right. So he, he rejoined the Hurricanes at that point. I look at Ringo's early career and think you know he has been doing star time all of his life you know i think he's he's been popular and you know has his spotlight so he was definitely the guy to have the beatles also knew that i mean george didn't have much respect for roy storm and their performance but he always respected ringo Yes. And he knew that, you know, that's the kind of drummer that we're going to need here. Yeah. I don't know when, whether we know a a date of the first time Ringo sat in. Yeah. It was at the cavern. It was probably late 61. When you listen to Pete Best's rendition of Love Me Do, and then you hear Ringo was doing, you know, what Ringo has is a lock with the other three that Pete just never had. The have a Nagila version of Love Me Do, as some people <laughs> refer to it. Right. I have a view on that. 
and that is, you know, when he when he moves to the skip, uh, he does it like three times during the song. I used to think, oh my god, what a terrible choice. But you have to figure that, you know, if John and Paul didn't approve, that wouldn't have flown. Well, the the missing piece, uh, one of their early television shows. The audio of that came out, and Ringo does do that skip beat. So it was part of the song. They cut it in the studio and didn't cut it that way. There's a you got six weeks between the the f- recordings with Pete and then the first recordings with Ringo. Right, but I'm just saying Ringo had only joined the band a week before, a little longer than a week. Then they were in the studio, so. It seemed like if he, if he was going to play it that way, it would have to have existed between Pete leaving and them going to the studio. Yeah, it was a little bit later. Like I said, they did this television performance, and Ringo played it, and it's like, why is he doing that? Somebody released that, although the tape has apparently been around for a little while. Getting back to Hamburg, the Beatles' next visit to Hamburg, and their last with Pete, was from April to May of 62. Right. That's when they found out that Stu had died. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, y- you watch in Backbeat or in Birth of the Beatles, and you think that's way over-dramatized, but it really was that way. You know, it really was maybe a day between Stu being pronounced dead and, and now Oster going to pick them up at the airport. Right. It, it really was just a bang, bang, and it's like, Wow, that's something that that nobody would write that way. Exactly. It was very dramatic, and there are reports that John was stunned, and not just in that moment, but for a the while. The whole trip. Yeah. Some people say he started laughing hysterically, and some people say he just broke down and started crying. Right. There's so much historically that is packed in such a short amount of time, you know, because he was that way apparently most of the trip. So that takes us into the latter part of May in June, they're at Abbey road. And it's of course it's now that's when Martin is going to say, mm, uh, I like it or we could do something, but I'm going to replace the drummer. And that was the catalyst. Then the other thing that happened in that intermediate time was, you know, Brian Epstein had come on the scene. Yes. The 62 trip was comfortable for them. They actually managed to fly over for the first time. Right. We're beginning treated like something, which Epstein was very good at. I don't know if Brian really wanted to book them for two separate visits over the rest of the year, or if that was a condition they made in order to give him this booking at the opening of the Star Club. I don't know the answer to that. That's why we're waiting for that book to show up. <laughs> Right. I can see this trip, and I can even see the next trip, but that December trip, particularly over Christmas and New Year's, given they were just on the verge of recording and then their single would be released, they were beyond that. Really, by November, they were beyond that. Yes, I would absolutely agree. And, and so would they, I think. I think so. The, so after the April trip, they came back for two weeks at the beginning of November, 1962. And as we say, love me do was out. Right. And going up the charts. And what do you have to do? when You got a record in the charts. You have to make performances and appearances. And they were in Germany. 
they weren't able to do what they really wanted to do as far as promoting the record. Exactly. But one of the neat things that came out of that trip, though, is uh, the photos that would become the cover of uh, Introducing the Beatles. Ostra took those. Those were a twist for me when I was first becoming a Beatle fan because, you know, I was immersed in all the, the capital way of promoting the Beatles, the look they had. And that picture was just so different. The coloring, the redness, <laughs> it was a whole different look. Although my eyes always go to that tear in the background. <laughs> I didn't know what that was for the longest time. And now that I've seen the original negatives or, you know, prints off of the original negatives, it's like, oh, <laughs> they're sitting in front of basically butcher paper, brown wrapping paper, and there's a tear in it. Right. <laughs> well, maybe she didn't have an assistant. Probably not. Then that brings us to the trip when they really didn't want to be there, uh, the 18th to the 31st of December 1962. They knew it was the last one, and they recorded Please Please Me. So they knew that was coming, and, and George Martin had told them, this is going to be your first number one. Exactly. And they were on the verge of recording the album. That's a month ahead of time before they do that. But despite the fact that they weren't happy to be there, there had to have been some nostalgia. And as we mentioned, you know, they still put on a hell of a show. If they are phoning it in, it's a pretty high standard, they said. <laughs> because, you know, if, if they're just not really doing it, it's powerful. And the song selection, a lot of these songs would never show up even on the BBC. Right. This, it's a unique thing. It's a, a different view of what they were. One of the things I get out of the recording that's beyond the music is their humor. There's several songs that uh, are funny that wasn't part of what they did later on. It's a last look at that. As we'd mentioned earlier, we're talking about the recordings. Not only is John uh, clearly having fun during his introductions, you can almost see him up there sort of mouthing off behind Paul. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, during, during Taste of Honey and... Uh, ask me why it's like yeah john would be back there having a larf as he'd say well yes that's part of what's going on there it's just an enjoyable listening experience because for the first time you can hear some nuance that was totally missing before ringo's drums come to the fore it's you can actually hear him and what it really meant to the band to have him there you listen to their version of sheila you know yeah okay it's just a copy of a buddy holly song but george's singing the playing the drums it's like wow they could do great versions of of a lot of different styles and as you said they they like to play and never really repeat themselves so they could play a, a variety of styles 
Although they were still tending to to rock it up during these sets. It's either rockers or ballads, but you've also got some other things mixed in there. Right. They, they were playing to the crowd. Absolutely. It's still a club date. <laughs> and it's New Year's Eve. You don't want people pissed off. If we go back to that video, you know, there really was a full house up there dancing in front of them. They didn't have to do much to get the house going. Right. Hey, it was a good act. <laughs> <laughs> you you have any uh, favorites off of this set? Your feet's too big. <laughs> I've always loved that. I got into Fat Waller because of that version. As bad as it was, fidelity-wise... I was like, I really like that. And I've always liked Paul singing Hippie Hippie Shake. He does a full-throated version, and it's really great. And Roadrunner and, uh, like I say, Sheila. The, that, well, that the whole set around there, Red Hot Sheila in Kansas City, that always just blows me away, that little set of three songs there. And I've always liked I'm Talk About You. You know, it wasn't until recently, you know, when I read Lewiston's book, when he talks about the impact of Mr. Moonlight in their live set, that it was an opener. The dramatic effect was they hadn't started playing yet, and John would just walk up to the mic and go, Mr. Moonlight. And that just had this big effect. I thought that's pretty smart. The recorded version is a little bit cheesy. Intentionally, I think, but it's still a little bit cheesy. The live version, they're just rocking it out. Yeah. That's listening to the record in NIMS and you saying, well, okay, we don't have the organ, so what are we going to do? Okay, we'll do it this way. It kind of makes me wish that there were a recording of What Did I Say, which they've always said was a showstopper. Yeah, that's a great song. So, I mean, you know, even with them not wanting to be there, the the set is still something to listen to. And it is important as a Beatles record. Yes. I've often thought that a form of this might have been George Martin's first thinking. He seriously considered recording at the Cavern. Yep, but he both couldn't get the equipment in there and the acoustics weren't anywhere near up to snuff. Yeah, I can imagine that. But I also don't think that he would have left the presentation of Leonard McCartney material to kind of a live recording. You'd have to have your studio recordings already. But it does make me wonder, the Beatles seem to have something against this recording. George Harrison went to court. He, and this was when... In the early days of when he was just starting to get sick, he he actually went and testified against Sony, saying, uh, you know, a drunken handshake is not a legal agreement. Once a member of the most famous group in the world, George Harrison now chooses to lead a life out of the spotlight. He was plainly not enjoying having to come to court to try to uphold the Beatles' reputation. The recording, which he described as the crummiest ever, was made in 1962 when the teenagers from Liverpool were relatively unknown and played regularly at the Star Club in Hamburg. The tape was recorded by a singer in another band who claims he was given permission by John Lennon. The case gives a fascinating insight into the life of the Beatles just before they made it big. It's claimed the recording was bought by Ted Taylor in return for buying the Beatles a round of drinks. <laughs> well, 
And then none of this material shows up on Anthology. This is true. I guess the the one thing we haven't really discussed is sort of the the how did this thing end up where we're at. So Ted Taylor, he, he had set up his tape machine in the middle of the Star Club. And, you know, we'd already talked about basically it was available for the use of, of the bands and people would sort of adjust the tape as it uh, <laughs> right we'll turn it over we'll put on a new tape as they noticed it ended up on a single reel which he gave in later years when when ted taylor was a butcher i believe he, he gave the tape to uh to someone who was running a studio well i should try and do something with this and the tape was locked up when the studio closed down so for for a long time, nobody even knew where this tape was. Well, it uh, it uh, had also been offered to Brian. Uh, Brian listened to it and said, "Well, we can't do anything with this. I'll give you twenty pounds. You know, right. It's fifty bucks, right? <laughs> for you know a, a lousy sounding tape. What we have now is a great version of it. The middle." era when the record first came out they sounded terrible i mean it was just more of a well now you can kind of see what the beatles did but it didn't sound very good and then they did some work on them Uh, so uh, you know time moved on there are rumors that uh, they again they were within a week 10 days of that former studio where the tape was housed being destroyed and we almost wouldn't have this tape yeah, it was close. In 75, 76, Ted Taylor gets together with some other people and actually manages to get some folks to invest some money into restoring this tape. You know, I, I can imagine just how bad that first version of the tape must have sounded like. One thing that is interesting is that Walter Hoffer was involved in moving this along. And some people might remember him that he was uh, an American lawyer who was involved with Nat uh, Weiss and uh, Brian Epson, hmm. the American legal voice of NEMS. So once the tape actually ended up with a KTEL, but they <laughs> actually uh, had a separate label they named Ling a Song specifically to get this release out to the public. Yeah, that's the version I have. They went and they took the original tape and they they tried to do something with it. They they filled they did frequency filtering across forty eight tracks, <laughs> right? And then they put that back together into a stereo release, and it still sounded cavernous, but better. It was almost listenable, but not quite. <laughs> right. Not anything you put on uh, for your friends on it. It's not a party tape. That's kind of the history of that tape. And then, then, then it just sort of went around, and there have been various versions up until, as I say, uh, in the 2010s where people who actually have the time and energy and really want to do something right were able to get fairly high generation copies of the tape and started messing with it. And the result is this release that has come out to the public 
in the last few years? You know, computers are great. <laughs> There's all sorts of things going on in the world. So the result of that is we, we were just saying, well, the, you know, the Lang a Song album is not something that you would play for your friends. You could crank up this, this version of the tape and, you know, people still might sort of look at you a little bit funny, but I think they dig it. I was impressed. I mean, I was impressed enough to tell my wife, you would believe what I heard. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, you know, I was, I was telling you when we were talking about what can we do for a show, it's like, oh, well, I don't have that yet. It's like, well, sit down and listen to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really good. You know, if you're out there wondering where you can get it, I can't tell you where to get it, but if you search for Lord Reith, L-O-R-D-R-E-I-T-H, I think you'll find it. It's out there on the internet. And as I'm fond of telling folks on the internet, do not buy the copies from the folks over in Japan who pressed it onto silver discs because he doesn't get any of that money. All those bootleggers have done is taken the uh, lossless files and pressed them onto disc and printed up the covers. Right. So none of the actual work was done by them. So, all right. The set is very much worth obtaining. I agree. In whichever form you want to get it. So, Rush right out. Buy two. To close out, just to let you folks know, we're recording this on Paul's birthday. Happy birthday, Paul McCartney. Happy birthday, Sir Paul. You know, and I'm going to say it, 79 years old. That just blows me away. You know, I, I never, ever considered that a beetle would be that old. And then well, we, goes, we should all, we should all have that much talent, skill and energy at that age. Absolutely. Ringo's 80. So, you know, I think playing music does something to you, your heart. All right. Great. So we'll be back next week with a new show. We'll see you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. What has been the major difficulty then that um, you faced in getting this marketed? The major difficulty is that people were, um, record companies were frightened, it appeared, to touch it because of uh, the legal aspect, uh, copyrights and uh, whether we were um, legally, you know, involved to be able to do this. Well, you eventually managed to get to the Beatles, didn't We you? eventually got right to the top to the Beatles and I had a fantastic meeting with uh, Ringo and George. We, ha we hadn't met for five years, and we were there for four hours talking about old times. George finished giving me a present for battle of about 16 rubies, uncut rubies, and all sorts of little things like on the tape there, God bless you, Alan. And they liked the idea of it, and they said, sure. Somewhere along the line, they felt that it could be used, but they want four copies, one for each. 
and they will sort of dress it up and present it to Paul and John. Uh, at the moment they're going through difficulties of their own and as soon as this is sorted out then we hope to have this out. So if the Beatles in fact say yes then uh, you're both going to be quite rich men aren't you? I hope so. Yes I hope so uh, sincerely it couldn't happen to nicer people. I tell you one thing there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.